All right, well, good morning. Let me encourage you to find your seat and find a Bible or an app. If you use, how many of you use the Version Bible app? All right, I saw it on Joey's phone. Joey, you've got the event up, correct? So if you go to Version on your app and you click on the bottom right, but more, bottom right corner, there's more, and you go to events, uh, you should be able to find Village Bible Church. And the notes are there. Um, and we've been experimenting with using that and helping have it guide uh, some of you who use your phones for that. And you can, you have, there's a place for you to enter your own notes. So you can type in your own notes there um, if you are interested in that. If not, uh, grab a good old hardcover or leather-bound or something and go to the book of James. The book of James. We are nearing the end of this letter. And we have been studying for several months um, what it means to have real faith in real life. Speaking of real life, as you're turning to James, you may have noticed a missionary update in your worship folder. Um, That's for your information to keep you updated about several of the missionaries that we support. And then I wanted to let you know that if you haven't grabbed your church directory, um, we have new directories. They're out at the welcome booth. um, And in the back of... The directory, there's a page, well, pages, for our missionaries. And we have as much information as we could pack in there as far as how, ways to contact them. So if you want to, and I would encourage you to, um, connect with one or more of our missionaries, you can send them letters, um, find out when their birthdays are, uh, follow them on social media, and be an encouragement to our missionaries all around the world. So I'd encourage you. Uh, in that direction. Last week we covered the first six verses of James chapter 5, and um, I commented last week about how connected it was with today's passage, verses 7 through 11. And so um, I'm going to go back and read, starting at verse 1, what we covered last week, and move all the way through verse 11 so that we can see the connection between what James addressed last week and what we're going to st- study this week because they're very closely connected. I think it will help us to see that. So, you should be with me in James chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 1. And I'm going to read on down through 11, and then we'll pray. James says this to the Spirit of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word today. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have shown us who you are. You've told us of our great need and you've shown us in your word how you have provided a savior. This morning, Lord, as we sang such good songs, as we reflect on your mercy towards us, your patience towards us this morning, help us to learn what it means to be patient with others, starting here uh, with our church body, our family. Lord, I pray that you would help us then to take that into our lives, that we might be known as a patient people, that in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our teams, in our school, that we would be known as those who are patient, not so that we might be seen as good, but that you might be seen as good and the source of our patience. Father, guide our time together in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for all of those of you who have mastered the art of patience, (laughs) just kidding, Um, I would like just to hear from the congregation, what at the moment do you need patience for in your life? What do we need patience for? Kids. Uh, anyone else feel that one? <laughs> yes. What else? Caregiving for your mom. When people are mean. Yeah. Your bag says be kind. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Okay, for Terry's hearing. Yep. Driving on the freeway. Okay, medical procedures. Co-workers. For school. Neighbors. Your own shortcomings. Okay, patience with yourself. Yeah, we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Um, For those of you who are single, patience for God to provide a spouse. For those of you who are widowed, or widows, patience in how um, you have to deal with things on your own. Um, For those of you who are looking forward to marriage, for those of us who are looking for a job, right? there's, There's patience required in so many things in our life. And I want to say at the outset that, yes, this passage is about patience, but I want us to note how specific James gets here. So James is not going to dwell on all of the applications of patience here, which is kind of why I wanted to to say that right now and have us share what we need patience for in our lives. But particularly, what James is speaking to here is patience in tribulation, patience in suffering, patience in oppression. And uh, the great thing about this is that the, the, the word for today is not be patient, go do it. But the word is, be patient, and here are some helpful illustrations of who to look for, right? We need need people to imitate. We need people in our lives that we can see who are further ahead, who are farther down the road, who can teach us and show us. And then we also have biblical illustrations here that are shown 
for us. And I want to give you an illustration just of someone we can model, someone who many of you may be, be familiar with. Um, but I want to tell you briefly the story of William Wilberforce, who was a politician um, in Great Britain in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Let me read some of his story to you. In the late 1700s, when William Wilberforce was a teenager, English traders raided the African coast on the Gulf of Guinea, captured between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans every year, shipped them across the Atlantic and sold them into slavery. It was a profitable business that many powerful people had become dependent on. One publicist for the West Indies trade wrote, the impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always prevent this traffic being dropped. The necessity, the absolute necessity then of carrying it on must, since there is no other, be its excuse. This is a stain upon our country's history and upon the United Kingdom. By the late 1700s, the economics of slavery was so entrenched that only a handful of people thought anything could be done about it. And that handful included William Wilberforce. And this would have surprised those who knew Wilberforce as a young man. He grew up surrounded by wealth. He was educated at St. John's College at Cambridge, but he was not a serious student. Yet he had political ambitions and with his connections managed to win election in Parliament in 1780 where he formed a lasting friendship with William Pitt, the future Prime Minister. But he later admitted, the first years in Parliament, I did nothing. Nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. But he began to reflect deeply on his life, which led to a period of intense sorrow. I am sure that no human creature could suffer more than I did for some months, he later wrote. His unnatural gloom lifted on Easter 1786, amidst the general chorus with which all nature seems on such a morning to be swelling the song of praise and thanksgiving, he wrote. He had experienced a spiritual rebirth. And he began to see his life's purpose. My walk is a public one, he wrote in his diary. My business is in the world and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. So in particular, two topics, causes, caught his attention. First, under the influence of Thomas Clarkson, he became absorbed with the issue of slavery. Later, he wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Wilberforce was initially optimistic, even naively so. He expressed no doubt about his chances of quick success. As early as 1789, he and Clarkson managed to have 12 resolutions against the slave trade introduced only to be outmaneuvered on fine legal points. The pathway to abolition was blocked by vested interests, parliamentary filibustering, entrenched bigotry, international politics, slave unrest, personal sickness, and political fear. Other bills introduced by Wilberforce were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. When it became clear that Wilberforce was not going to let the issue die, pro-slavery forces targeted him. He was vilified. Opponents spoke of, quote, the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies, unquote. The opposition became so fierce, one friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce's being broiled by Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, and eaten by Guinea captains. 
All this in spite of the fact that poor health plagued him his entire life, sometimes keeping him bedridden for weeks. During one such time in his late 20s, he wrote, I am still a close prisoner, wholly unequal even to such a little business as I am now engaged in, add to which my eyes are so bad that I can scarce see how to direct my pen. When healthy, however, he was a persistent and effective politician, partly, (laughs) let me read that again, persistent and effective politician, partly due to his natural charm and partly to his eloquence. His anti-slavery efforts finally bore fruit in 1807. Parliament abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. He then worked to ensure the slave trade laws were actually enforced, and finally that slavery in the British Empire was abolished. So the slave trade was abolished, but slavery itself was not abolished. Wilberforce's health prevented him from leading the last charge, though he heard three days before he died that the final passage of the Emancipation Bill was ensured in committee. He died in 1833, 44 years after his first attempts to abolish the slave trade. His patience and endurance have become legendary, and they are a model for us. Of course, I could have used Abraham Lincoln as an example, and throughout the scripture we have many examples of patience. Abraham was told he was going to have a son, and 25 years later, he had that son. We can think of Moses in the wilderness dealing with the children of Israel for 40 lousy years. We can think of Jesus growing up in obscurity in a hick town far away from the centers of power. We can think of so many in the scriptures who had to wait. David on the run for 10 years from his father-in-law and the king. Patience is shown, not just preached, throughout the scripture for us. And that is important for us to see. The main point in your notes is this. That patience through difficulty, that's the important part here, patience through difficulty is necessary for God's people as we wait for the Lord to return and right all wrongs. Patience through difficulty is necessary for God's people as we wait for the Lord to return and right all wrongs. The connection between patience and waiting and the return of Jesus is what is highlighted in this passage. And the purpose is because of what was what we talked about last week, the oppression of the rich to the weak, to the poor, to the Christians. Because of that oppression, then James says, therefore, in this passage, you ought to be patient. And it might be, uh, it might be obvious, but obviously the more difficult our days, the more patience that we need. The more suffering that we go through, the more patience that we need to endure. And that is tied directly to Jesus' return. What we also see in this passage is three times in these five verses, James talks to the churches and he uses the term brothers. And again, I'll say this until the day I die. Ladies, you're not excluded from this. Um, just like in Spanish, when we go around and talk about, the, when we go down to Mexico and we're inviting kids to VBS, I always use my example. We ask the home if there are any niños. And that's a masculine noun, but we are not just asking if there are little boys, we're asking if there are children, right? Boys and girls. Same thing in Greek. Okay, the word here means brothers and sisters. He is using a term of affection, a family term for these churches, and in five verses he uses it three times. In the previous two sections, he's not used that word at all which is part of the reason why I think last week's passage is referring to non-Christian rich, because he doesn't talk to them as brothers. He speaks to them as outsiders and those who have persecuted the church. So we see the family 
language that is used here and the repetition of the phrase, the coming of the Lord. And from here on out, the language is much less sharp. In fact, one of uh, a prominent commentator from two centuries ago said this, as far as James's tone, as far as his writing, the storm of indignation is past. And from this point to the end of the epistle, St. James writes in the tone of tenderness and affection. Last week, we did not note his tenderness or affection as far as flesh being eaten by fire and, you know, things like that. From here on out, James is specifically encouraging his brothers and his sisters. So let's look at the passage now and see what we have to learn from it. Point number one, he notes, Jesus is coming with rescue and judgment, so be patient. Jesus is coming with rescue and judgment, so be patient. This is undeniably James's point in verses 7 and 8. The first words are, be patient. Before the verse is done, it says, being patient. Verse 8 starts with, you also be patient. This was not a difficult point to figure out. I didn't have to do a lot of digging. This is what James is communicating to his audience. He wants them to be patient and he gives them motivation and hope. Right? So this is not just, hey, be patient. Right? (laughs) It's not just when I'm fed up with my children and I say, hold your horses. (laughs) Okay? This this is not just a, a command thrown out there on its own. This It is a command, but notice that James does not give it without help. Be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. We saw in the previous passage that the Lord of hosts was coming, the Lord of armies, the Lord of judgment, and he was coming to right all wrongs. And so it is in this vein that he says, listen, when the Lord returns... If you're patient until then, then all of these temporary, and what what Paul would say, light momentary afflictions, will be over because Jesus comes to rescue his redeemed and to judge those who have rejected him, who are also the enemies of his people. You can also see that the patience that is mentioned here has to do with waiting but it is not passive. So oftentimes we think of waiting like I'm waiting for them to show up. Okay? I'm waiting for the bus. I'm waiting for the train. I'm waiting for the carpool. Right? I'm, I'm waiting for the mail. I'm waiting for the delivery. Many times we think of those things as a passive, and, and a lot of them are, as a passive waiting. We can't do anything, so we just sit here. Almost every time the Bible speaks of patience, it is not speaking of a passive patience. It is speaking of an active patience. There are things to do while we wait. Okay, so when the Old Testament says repeatedly, wait on the Lord, it is not a, 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 a we're not to understand that as to mean do nothing. Just hang out. What, what we are, what we are told to do is wait until this is, wait until this happens and actively work to be patient. Don't you have to actively work to be patient? You, you easily, I easily fall into impatience if I don't actively work to be patient. Correct? It's like being in a stream and you're going downstream. You will get impatient unless you actively work to row the other way. And so, 
as we go through this passage, do not think of this as merely sitting around and waiting. We have a job to do. We have several jobs to do. One of them is just to establish our hearts, to make sure that we are ready to wait well. And then the other thing is that we know from the rest of Scripture is that we have a job to do now while we wait. While we wait, we have a job to do. We have several ladies who've just had babies. have another one who's about to. We have babies on the way. But there is a sense in which you, you can't do anything, you just wait. But then there is a sense and there's a lot of things that you can do to prepare. Right? And so this is an active preparation. There's a baby coming. There's work to be done. Right? However, there is a waiting until the baby comes. James tells him to be, tells them to be patient. And then he gives them an illustration, which is so helpful. He doesn't just leave them alone. He gives them an illustration. And the illustration that he gives in verse 7 is of a farmer. Now, years ago when Pastor Leroy was the senior pastor, he would have given you a much better illustration. And for those of you that were here when Pastor Leroy was here, you remember some of those illustrations. I will leave you to it. I do not have any farming experience. Um, However, what he does for these people is he gives them a picture of something they all knew about. So many of the people in ancient days were farmers, if even just to sustain themselves, if even just to provide for themselves. How many of you have a garden of some sort? Round up. <laughs> uh, okay, so we've got, we've got some people that have a garden. How many people have killed plants in their garden this year by neglect or something else? Okay, wow, look at that. We're all in the same boat. Okay, good. Um, yeah, th- this is, I think, probably the closest that those of us who didn't grow up on a farm or are familiar with farm life can come is that garden that we work hard at or not so hard at to keep going. And the, the picture in verse 7 is that James wants them to see the farmer and how the farmer waits. Notice this, not just for the fruit. What kind of fruit? Precious fruit. Now, the precious in several instances. Precious in that the farmer needs that to live. But it's also a word that's generally used for jewels or for crowns. This word precious. It's not normally applied to like corn. Okay, or grain. Alright, now maybe you really love your tomatoes or something, but... Precious is not normally a word that's placed on this, but James says, for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. What's important to note about illustration number one, the patient farmer, is that the the precious fruit is coming, but the farmer can only do so much. The farmer must wait. The farmer doesn't plant water and come out the next day saying, where is it? Where did it go? I watered it yesterday. The farmer has to wait. The farmer needs to wait. And what does the farmer wait for? Specifically, the early and the late rains. Now, this is helpful for us. For those of you that have been uh, with us on a trip to Israel or you've been to Israel uh, on your own, uh, much of the climate is similar to climates that we're familiar with here in Southern California for the most part. Um, But what the farmers there depended on was the early and the late rains. And the early rains were generally like in October and November. Do we receive a lot of rain in October and November? No, our our rain generally comes in January and February. And that's similar in much of Israel. But what's important about the early and the latter rains is, yeah, we're going to get the rain in January and February. But we're planting well before that, so we need the early rains. So they would pray, God, give us the early rain. 
And the latter rain would be asking for an extended rainy season to really bring about a good crop. In fact, what James is probably drawing on is uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 11. Could you go there with me really quick? Go back to your Old Testament. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, followed by Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 11. As Moses is telling the people of Israel what to do, what to expect, how to act when they enter the promised land, he says this in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. The goodness of God on full display. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there are references to the early and the late rains, and every single one of them, including this in Deuteronomy, speaks of God's faithfulness to provide for his people. So as we look at James chapter 5, the echoes of the Old Testament that should be going in our heads, which the Jewish readers of this would have been very familiar with, should be of the way that God provides for us. But in the time that we Wait, we must be patient. We plant, we water, and we wait for God to give the growth. Now that is real, that is physical, that is material, but that is also our spiritual growth as well, right? The, the, the seed that is planted, that is watered in our hearts through the preaching of God's word, through regular devotion and Bible study, through small groups, through podcasts that you might listen to, all of that planting and watering. We depend on God to bring about the growth, but we are not to be passive in the meantime. We patiently wait for God as we work with what he has given to us. There at the end of verse 8, after he tells them to be patient again, I want you to notice this. This is part of the, the sermon title. Establish your hearts. Verse 8 says, Establish your hearts. Or, or strengthen your heart, as some of your translations will say. Uh, the, the word refers to making something stand up, making it so that it will stand up, making it so when the trials come, when the winds blow, that it will stand. So we are to establish our hearts, our inner life, our motivations, our emotions, our plans, our will, all wrapped up in this. And again, we see that this establishing shows us that patience is not complacency. It is active. We, have, we must work to establish our hearts to be patient until the Lord comes. So we act and we wait. Both of those things are true. We work, we act, and we wait. And this is a good, delicate balance that we need to take. We need to understand that we do have work to do. But that work is not to work for salvation or work for God's approval. Rather, it's because God has saved us and brought us into his family. For those of us that have repented and believed in the gospel, we now work because God has given us his Holy Spirit. He has shown us what we are to do. And now we gladly work for him because of what he has done for us. This is important for us to understand. We can only establish our hearts if our hearts have been made new 
by the Lord. After using the illustration of the farmer, James moves on and he kind of drops something that seems maybe a little bit out of character or maybe a little bit out of the sequence or the flow. But look at verse 9. In verse 9, he says to these Christians, these Jewish Christians, do not grumble against one another, brothers. (laughs) That's a very, I think, effectively placed in there. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Notice even here in his mention of judgment that he does it in a kind, encouraging way. This is much different than what, how he treated the rich last week. The corrosion of their riches. The way this, the riches will stand up against them. The way that their flesh will be eaten by fire. The way that they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. He speaks much differently here. And I think that the, the connection between grumbling against one another in patience is that when we become impatient, a common out uh, a common outflow of that is grumbling. When we don't get what we want, we grumble. When we're waiting too long, we grumble. And often we take that out on those closest to us first. We often take it out on our family and our church family. So I think the connection here is that in the waiting, James wants the church, brothers, don't grumble, and not just a general grumbling, like being an being an impatient complainer. But don't grumble against each other. When we're waiting around, if we passively wait, we can just start looking around going, I don't like that. Why are we singing that dumb song? Nobody likes that song. I wish the pastor were more funny. We start to find things to nitpick. Why don't we have a Sunday school class covering this subject? Why don't we have this ministry here? And we can be tempted to begin to grumble against one another while we wait. I think that's an important Part, part of why our waiting must be active. If our waiting is passive, we begin to look around and see things to complain about. It's really important that he uses the word grumble because James is probably referencing the grumbling of the children of Israel in the wilderness under Moses. This is important for us to see another echo of the Old Testament is that this word is often used in the Old Testament when the children of Israel grumbled or murmured against the Lord in the wilderness. And it's important for us to see as well, because we often read those stories and say, what a bunch of idiots. They had just seen the Red Sea parted. They crossed on dry land. God made water come out of a rock. God did all these plagues against Egypt to get people that were in slavery out. How could they complain? I would just encourage you, look at the year 2019. Maybe, maybe you and I have done the same thing. Maybe. Perhaps we've been given so much and yet we doubt God. Perhaps we have so many examples in our own lives of the Lord providing for us and yet we still complain about his lack of provision in our life. Maybe we're impatient with the Lord. I think the Jewish people would have heard that grumbling and would have seen what happened with the children of Israel. God chose the people of Israel. He loved the children of Israel and yet he still judged them because of their grumbling which showed unbelief. Notice what James says. Not just, again, not just a command on its own, but don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now we know that for the Christian, for the person who has been made new by the Lord because of belief in Jesus' death and resurrection, that we no longer have any condemnation. Romans 8.1 is very clear. There's no more condemnation for us. Jesus took all that on himself so that you and I never have to. 
but there is still judgment left for us, not in a final judgment kind of way, but in a disciplining sort of way. And, and James even says, the judge is at the door. So it, what's interesting to think about is, if the judge is standing at the door and the people are inside, can you hear them grumbling against one another? Probably. You know, it's, it's right before you knock and you can hear something going on inside. The picture is almost the judge is about to enter and the people inside are grumbling. Now, what, what's the Lord going to do? He's not going to enter and throw everybody to, into hell. We're talking about Christians here. What he's going to do is he's going to discipline. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4 this afternoon and see an example of what this looks like. Where the Lord judges us by the works that we have done, not for salvation, but for obedience to him. Paul says that our works will be burned with fire and those that were done for him will last and those that were not done for him will burn up. There's also temporary judgment, right? Like Paul says to the Corinthians that they're not observing the Lord's Supper well, that some of them have died and some of them have become sick. There is judgment for Christians who do not follow the Lord in his teaching. He gently, James gently tells his brothers, don't grumble against one another. That is a sign of impatience. It is a sign that you are not trusting God, that you're not waiting. Whining and complaining is the opposite of being patient. Another thing that happens is that grumbling often short circuits our ability to be patient. If we continually let ourselves, give ourselves to grumbling, we are actively working against becoming patient. It's almost like our patience muscle doesn't get worked out and it shrivels. Because we're working out the grumbling muscle, which is a lot easier to work out. I mean, man, it just, it just starts to beef up real quick when I work out that muscle. And sometimes the patience muscle just, I look in the mirror and I don't see any progress. And I think that that's important for us to, to note. We're accepted. We're loved. But in the family of God, there are still expectations of how we ought to act. Of what we show to the world. Lastly, When do we grumble? Oftentimes it's when we're under pressure, when things are hard. For these people, it was when the rich were oppressing them. And so the idea is that the rich were oppressing the Christians and they began to turn on each other. They began to grumble at each other. They can't control the outside situation, so they begin to to nitpick and to get after each other. And and we, we want to avoid that at all costs because we want to be sure that we are helping one another be patient. I need you to help me be patient. We need each other to help us be patient. We need to say, please pray for me. I am just yelling at my kids every day. Please pray for me. I'm so impatient with waiting for a new job. Right? These are things that we can help each other with. The picture of, of the scripture here is not to say, stop grumbling at each other and everyone turn into their own little holy huddle and fix yourself. It is a corporate thing. Brothers, sisters, don't grumble against one another. And then after verse 9, James then turns to more examples of suffering and patience, which is really helpful for us. In fact, he gives us two more. So we had the illustration of the farmer, and now illustration number 2 in verse 10 are the patient prophets. The patient prophets. When, when we see these patient prophets, we're not told which ones James is referring to, but James is assuming a knowledge of the Old Testament. So if you have 
spent time in the Old Testament, you'll begin to, to think of examples of this. If you're not as familiar with the Old Testament, you're a newer believer, you've forgotten, um, there's just so many good examples of prophets who are oppressed, who are abused, who are persecuted, and yet continue to obey and to prophesy. Um, several examples from the Old Testament come to mind, um, both Elijah and Elisha. Um, several prophets that are named for just one or two stories. But we, we ought to think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as maybe the primary example that James is referring to here. If you've not read the book of Jeremiah, you should dive into that. It is the longest book of the Bible by words. Um, the book that bears his name. And if you look at it, you'll see a ministry that spans more than 40 years. By the way, you read chapter 1 and Jeremiah didn't want to do it. He was unwilling to do this at first, but more than 40 years of ministering. And as you read his prophecies and the stories that are reflected in his encounters with the leaders of Judah, even with good kings, it seems like he was never popular, that his message was always rejected or maybe put up with. King Jehoiakim receives a letter from Jeremiah about what the Lord has to say to King Jehoiakim, and he cuts it up himself and throws it into the fire. He was imprisoned more than once. More than one attempt on his life is recorded in the Bible, and he's rescued by a Gentile because the Jews refuse to help him. At the end of the book, he's taken to Egypt against his will. And it is debatable whether more than a handful of people in his entire ministry really believed Jeremiah's message. 40 plus years and maybe a couple converts taken out of his home, led to Egypt where we assume that he died. And yet the whole time he's faithful to give the children of Israel the message that God has given to him. He is an example, as are other prophets, of patience in suffering. Notice verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, there's that word again. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets are also a great example of what it means to be patient and not be passive. So the prophets were patient during their ministries, but they weren't passive. They were far from it. They were active. They were showing up in the palace and speaking truth to power. That's what a prophet does. A prophet says the things that aren't popular. A prophet says the things the leaders don't want to hear. A prophet confronts. And that is what Jeremiah and the others did with these kings. They wrote their prophecies out. They traveled around the nation of Israel. They preached to those who would listen and to those who wouldn't. So the prophets show us that patience also means actively opposing evil and rebellion against God and then accepting the consequences. So just as the passage last week ended with the one who is, the righteous person is not resisting, we, we do like what Martin Luther King Jr. did. We protest wrongs in society and then we accept imprisonment. Right? Now, Martin Luther King Jr. is a, a great example of this. He's thrown into prison and he writes the famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which many of you had to read in school, which is a fantastic work of, of talking about nonviolent resistance. And this is what we see here. The prophets speak fiery words, but they don't use fiery acts. They accept what is, what is done to them. Jeremiah was thrown into a muddy cistern where they expected him to die. He did not work actively to undermine the administration, 
of the king, but he did speak of the wickedness and evil of the king and his followers. So suffering patiently does not mean watching silently. Suffering patiently does not mean watching silently. Now, some of you are thinking, but that's not my job. I'm not a speaker. That's fine. There are all sorts of ways for us to actively work while we wait. To actively work while we wait. And last, in verse 11, we see illustration number three, the steadfast sufferer, Job. The steadfast sufferer, Job. James says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And that is like a hinge verse between the prophets and then what he speaks of next with Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And, and these verses sound a lot like the beginning of James's letter. Just look back at chapter 1 really quick. Chapter 1, verse 12 in particular. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood a test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's an undeniable echo of that here at the end of the letter. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And James is borrowing from his brother Jesus. What Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. The response that Jesus trains us to do is when you're reviled, when you're persecuted, rejoice. Be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James gives them the example of the prophets because Jesus gave the examples of the prophets. By the way, sidebar, this is why you should not avoid the Old Testament. It's three quarters of the Bible. Get in there, dig in, read, understand, use a study Bible. Get to know the characters of the Old Testament and what they teach us. Get out of just Psalms and Proverbs. I love Psalms and Proverbs. But try to slog through First Chronicles. So many good things in there for us. And we will understand the New Testament better if we understand the Old Testament. James tells them of the steadfastness of Job. Now you might not think of Job immediately as the steadfast one. Because there's like dozens of chapters in the middle of the book of Job where he's just complaining the whole time. I'm reading Job right now in personal devotions. And sometimes it's like... All right, let's keep going. Let's get through this. Let's get through this. One, it's poetry, and that's hard for me. And two, stop whining. (laughs) But you'll see at the beginning of the book of Job and at the end of the book of Job that God commends Job, not for everything, but he commends Job for his faith. For though, even though his wife, his own wife says to him, curse God and die, Job refuses to do that. Now, he doesn't mind having an argument with God. But in the end, God justifies Job and says to his friends, you did wrong here. Job, the righteous one, must make a sacrifice for you to cover your sins. What we learn from Job is that, yes, things will be difficult and things may be unseen and unknown. In all of that, a relationship with God means that we can be authentic with God. Job complains, Job argues, Job challenges God. And yet in all of it, he humbled himself when God speaks. God speaks at the end and says, put your pants on, Job. Here we go. 
Did you, where were you when I did this? Where were you doing this? And Job just goes, okay, all right, okay. And he humbles himself. That's the right response. That's the right response when God speaks. He didn't take his wife's bait to curse God and die. He stood firm. He was steadfast. Now, we should not expect necessarily that we're, to, that we're going to receive all the rewards and benefits that Job did. There's too many other examples in the Old Testament that show us that does not always happen. But Job here is, is seen to be an example for us in remaining steadfast, not just in the everyday, but specifically in trials. Whether that's, whether that's illness, whether that's enemies, whether that's specifically spiritual warfare, whether that's difficulties that are introduced into your life because of family, friends. It's really helpful for us to see these examples. And lastly, the way that James closes is to say, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord worked it out with Job. And then the final phrase, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that is a very good place for us to end when speaking of being patient. If the Lord is compassionate and merciful, then can't we be patient? If he is compassionate with us, merciful with us, then he's given us what we need to be patient. God doesn't tell us what to do and then not give us the means to do it. He has given us, in this new covenant, his Holy Spirit to give us power to do what he's asked us to do. God is not Zeus up in the clouds waiting to throw lightning bolts at us because we can't get it done. <laughs> I told them to do it and they can't do it. Bam! God is, is actually pictured in the scriptures as pouring out his love, like a pitcher, like pouring out his love on us and giving us what we need to obey. So, brothers and sisters, we can be patient, but not in our own strength. We can be patient in the strength that the Lord gives. He is compassionate and merciful Those are the very words that Yahweh uses when he reveals himself to Moses. These are some of the most repeated phrases in the entire Bible. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. That is who he is. That is how we know him to be. He is compassionate and merciful. And he loves us. Let me end with a quote that I think is in your notes. I neglected to put the speaker, a preacher from centuries ago, George Swinnick. And he says this, think about this for your week. To lengthen my patience is the best way to shorten my troubles. And to lessen my patience is the speediest way to lengthen my pain. Now that's not absent from the work of God in our lives. Okay, but notice what he's saying. If we work at being patient and we work at being patient and we work at being patient and we work at being patient, then our troubles don't leave. Our troubles may continue. But as our patience paces with our troubles, then we have a way to trust God to get us through to the other side. And that may mean the other side is death. Some of you have illnesses and conditions that God will not cure in this life. I don't know why. Some of you have things that God will heal, perhaps miraculously. And on the other side of that, we see the patience that God has given to us. But it will all be worth it in the end, as Paul says, when these light momentary afflictions, how dare he say that? Light and momentary? I've been dealing with this for four decades. 
I mean, you can go toe-to-toe with the Apostle Paul about suffering. I wouldn't, but you could. And see that what, what we see is that the patience that we need for several decades will bear fruit for eternity. And if you put that math equation together, then I'll go with what works for eternity rather than ease for a few decades. Let's pray. Father, we are an impatient people. So give us patience. Patience is not something we receive tomorrow. Patience is something we need and receive and develop for the rest of our lives. Lord, there are seasons where we need it more. I pray for those right now in this room who really, really need your help and our help in being patient, in suffering, in trials, in persecution. Father, let us see that in others and encourage them, not in a superficial way, but in a deep, scripture-informed way that we might help each other be patient. And Lord, let us be patient so that we might be different, so that people would notice, so that we might point others to you, that we would not take pride in our patience, that we not take pride in being noticed for being a more patient person, but that we would be able to point to you and say to God, be the glory, great things he has done. So Lord, go with us this week. We just beg you to help us to be patient. In Jesus' name, amen.